This is the Ben Ryan Podcast, part of the Sports Podcast Network. Confidence, attitude, mindset, skill set, coping with pressure, dealing with anxiety and stress. This episode is all about performance psychology. What I wanted to achieve in these conversations you're listening in on is to provide insight and tools that you can use and wrap it all around some great storytelling and discussion. And my expert guest this week does just that. Dr. Austin Swain is one of the co-founders of Lane 4, experts in organizational performance that have got a 25-year track record of world-class and groundbreaking delivery. He was England Rugby's first sports psychologist and has worked with many, many top-end professional sports teams and athletes. But he's also spent a huge amount of his career in the corporate sector too, something we'll expand upon later in the conversation. I've known Austin since my student undergraduate days at Loughborough University. I wasn't a model student. Until the penny dropped at the midpoint of my time there, lectures were kind of an inconvenience. At that point, I had sport to play and beer to drink, but I never missed a lecture from Austin, perhaps even though I failed to immediately connect the benefits of the other parts of the degree I was there for, sports psychology felt useful, felt relevant, felt long lasting. Much of my coaching success has been grounded in my man management and those softer skills to what I would now call creating an environment of psychological safety. So even though I probably crawled into a few of his seminars from the night before or was dragged off the grass from a game of touch soaked in sweat, his dulcet tones and engaging way resuscitated me and has given me a lifelong learning journey around leadership, management and performance. This discussion had so much in it that we've decided to make it a two-parter. This first part starts with Austin beginning to discuss how we all deal with pressure. Coping with pressure, that's a lot of what sports psychology and all performance psychology is about. It's about helping people manage their emotions and thoughts to create an optimal performance state. You know, so what's the best quote, best version of self? Because very often we can have thinking patterns which uh, hijack our ability to perform at our best. Um, and the way I sometimes look at it, there's almost like three levels. There's, you can be someone who conducts anxiety and stress as a function of your thinking patterns and the way you internalize it or you can sort of insulate against it it's quite neutral or you can actually thrive on it and maybe that's some of the mindset shift is that these are the conditions that actually bring the best out of me so you get people having a sort of approach motivation as opposed to an avoidance motivation okay and actually see things as opportunities as, as opposed to threats so there's some subtle mindset things there which are relevant it never ceases to amaze me that some of the sort of great athletes who are supremely talented sometimes have sort of irrational thoughts and some sort of crooked thinking, sort of self-sabotage. In some yeah. Ways, right. Yeah. So uh, I'll give you an example. I used to, this is a long time, long time ago, Ben, but with a rugby player, international rugby player, many caps, who would say, oh, I never play well three times in a row. And you go, oh, well, no kidding, you know, because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's really interesting, just as an example of that, I had the pleasure of, Actually, he's interviewing as part of a podcast, uh, Rob Carney, legendary Irish football, you know, sort of 95 caps, British Lion. And, and so one of our, our clients is the Bank of Ireland. And of course, Leinster, they're sponsored by the Bank of Ireland. And we did this session interviewing a high, performance, a high performer from another sphere and whether there's some transfer into people who work in the bank. And I was, t- was telling the story about, you know, th- never play well three times in a row. And he said, yeah, it's funny that. He said, uh, he said I 
always used to tell myself that I'd never play well at Murrayfield. He said, I don't, I don't know why. He said, I, I just managed to have to really, really grapple with my gremlins about the fact that I just never play well in Murrayfield. It's one of those things. And of course, he had to find a way for that not to be the case because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And did he manage to break yeah, that? Yeah, and he did. Yeah. But it's a kind of like, you know, yeah, I just don't sort of um, accept that. But I have to maybe work harder, be more deliberate around how I prepare myself and, and shut down that potential thought. And he spoke really fluently and quite amusingly about that. If you were to sum up then what performance psychology brings to a sports team or an organisation, how would you sell that? I think at an individual level, there is purely in terms of how you go about your life and you take on the tasks that come your way, regulating thoughts and emotions such that they are conducive and they, you are the best version of yourself. So I think there's a lovely phrase by Oscar Wilde. He talks about um, be yourself because everyone else is taken. But I think where the kind of performance psychology comes in, it's like be yourself, but with skill. Okay. So be aware of the, maybe the difference between intention and impact. Be aware of how under pressure there may well be certain behaviours which are derailers, where sometimes overplayed strengths don't necessarily bring out the best of you and others. So there's something about raising awareness and or just ensuring that day in, day out, your best version of self um, and that the pressures and the challenges that come your way don't take you off course. So going back to, say, 95, when you were with a, a group of players in England with the, the national rugby team that would not probably have come across a psychologist in their group before. And, you know, it's, it was you know, we're just moving into the professional area. They're still amateur back then, just about to skip across into it in 97. Um, how did they see you then? Case by case, for sure. And... I think the advantage in terms of the degree of acceptance or, or, or otherwise was that the captain at that time was Will Carling. Yeah. Will Carling did a psychology degree at Durham and Will valued or saw the benefits that it could bring. Having said that, there was a really, it's a really interesting time uh, because I remember this. It's, if you've taken me right back, there was a rugby special programme I think Chris Ray hosted it, so I'm going, I'm going way back in my time. And Jeff Probin yes, was his played panelist. with Jeff, yeah. Rugby legend, right? Yeah. And I think there was some conversation about the fact that England were uh, involving a sports psychologist. And, he, and Chris Ray sort of had the question, you know, what's your view? And uh, Jeff's going, well, well, in my view, you're either good enough or you're not. So there was that subtext a little bit. And at the same time... I did some work with, um, I was invited in to do some work with a uh, premiership football team or, yeah, Premier League distance time. And I remember the manager was not a fan. And, and he says, well, he said, you need to convince me that there's a role to be played here. He said, because when I was uh, brought up, I was brought up to believe that men were men and sheep were sheep. So in other words, a complete, you've either got it or you haven't, and it's a sign of weakness, yeah. and there is absolutely no role. Now, coming back to the England team, I'm not saying all the players were like that at all, but there was still that perception that if you did see the sports psychologist, you weren't capable of coping with the pressures of the game. And it was seen as a sign of weakness, as opposed to being seen or interpreted as something where, uh, actually, this is going to help me become even better or be even more consistent and you know, deal with running out in front of 80,000 people and actually loving it. Did you do anything as a team or was it individual? Was it, well, was a, bit it, was it a mix? So, so I'll tell you, so, so, certainly on an individual basis. So there's certainly individuals who felt um, once you got past the fact that there was no expectation 
that people would be dragooned into having a conversation. And I think sometimes you have to get past that view about, well, what are we talking about? Is, are you going to be asked questions about one's childhood and what lie down on a reclining couch and Austin comes in with his white lab coat? No, you have to get past that. Yeah. And of course, I think the world has moved on dramatically uh, since then. But one of the things I look back on it now is that there was a, there was a, a, a pressure or a taboo which had been lifted. So I'll give you an example. So there was one player who was yeah, a legend at that time within the England setup and a key player within the squad. And I remember one particular situation where we sat at a lunch table and the conversation came to, oh, we're not sleeping well in the build-up to the game. For some reason, just not sleeping well. And so I approached him afterwards. I said, look, you know, there, there are things you can do around some meditative techniques some calming yourself down before you go to sleep or you actually, you know, shut down that part of the brain that just is agitated and just can't get the, you know, so, because clearly we know that from a performance perspective, you know, a good night's sleep's fundamental. And he was interested, uh, but he said, uh, no. Uh, I won't go there. I said, oh, why not? He said, my roommate would kill me. My roommate would, yeah, in, in, ensure that um, I was ridiculed appropriately for it within the squad. Yeah. I'm trying to use my words carefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this, such was the culture at the time in pockets was that you have a very established player who instinctively knows this is something that will help his performance, but chooses not to for the fear of the banter and the ridicule it might create from another senior player. And I remember being staggered by that, but that was what was what it was. Yeah, and you'd hope things have changed now totally. because they're so so much more embedded. Mm. One of, the, mm. I mean, there's, I, I can think of a guy that I've uh, helped out a little bit that's now playing in the in the Premier League as a centre forward, and he, you know, one of the one of his coping strat one of his strategies really is is just writing down some some process goals that he'll he'll pull out at half time. And he's also like half the half the thing there is to be confident enough to pull that out in front of his teammates, so that he can because he he wants to remind himself and he wants to stay in in the moment and not worry if he's missed a chance just before that or he hasn't scored yet or all of those sort of things. And he's using that. I bet the world is dramatically different. I'm conscious, you know, as we're talking here, that you might have some people going, oh, "That's staggering." But it's 25 years ago, and things have moved on dramatically because teams now realize that there's a kind of an acceptance of if that person whatever that person does to be at their best we're all actually going to ultimately benefit from that now one of the things i did do collectively and this was a a precursor to that because i think there was a nascent need in that squad to talk openly about some of these things but there wasn't I guess the, 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 it wasn't established that that was okay to do so. So one thing I would share and th is that on the night before the quarter final, so this is the 1995 the 1995 Rugby World, World Cup, Cup so, in South Africa, um, England are playing Australia. This is a time when England would meet on a Wednesday lunchtime before a game on a Saturday. Everybody was you know, full time employed, more or less, and then the session on the afternoon on the Wednesday there wouldn't be the full squad because some people couldn't get time off work. Right. So effectively, you had two days okay. to prepare, the Thursday yeah. and the Friday. Okay. So that was a context. And then during the World Cup in South Africa, there was the pool game, and then England qualified from the pool and were playing Australia in the, in the quarterfinal. And it was, yeah, clearly, knockout game and a lot at stake. And I do remember one player, a senior player, saying this is like maybe... Yeah, 24 hours before the game saying I tell you what guys we've got to win otherwise we're back at work on Monday 
Now, that's, don't get me wrong, the motivation was far deeper than that. Yes. It was a throwaway line yeah. around, it was almost a dawning on people that this three, four-week journey of spending time together could come to an abrupt end this time tomorrow. And you think, yeah, that's, it's an indication of the difference of the era. Okay? Now, having said that, these were the best athletes in the world, supreme rugby performers. Now, so the night before, then I just felt there was something that, was, um, that could possibly give an edge and it's back to this point about this nascent wish to express something um positive about each other but without it being seen as a, a bit soft yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And not something that yeah. big burly blokes did so we did an exercise so uh, imagine the room you've got and um, i've got a bit of uh, a, a4 paper three sheets of a4 paper and each player had this this bit of paper and, uh, and on each bit of paper would be like number one the player's name and a bit of space. Number two, player's name and a bit of space. Number three, player's name and a bit of space. And so on, right through through to 21. And I said, right, what I'd like you to do is, on this, effectively this strip of paper, I want you to write down why you are pleased that you're running out on the pitch tomorrow with this player. So if this player is the best player you have ever played with in this position, tell him. You know, what does this player bring to this team that no one else brings? You know, why are you personally just so excited about taking the pitch with this guy? And you've got to do it for everybody. And and it's interesting because there was engagement straight away. There was absolute silence. But then at the end of the process, I then separated out all of those strips of paper and then put them in an envelope so, for example, if you were, for example, Will Carling, who was number 12, there would, Will would have had 20 statements from his 20 teammates as to why they were pleased they were running out on the pitch with him. And then, of course, I submitted those to each of the players afterwards. And I think it made a huge difference because it was almost for the first time, it wasn't laced with banter. For the first time, people knew the significance of that. So it was actually said, look, guys, you are going to get an envelope with 20 statements here. This is not a time to damn someone with faint praise. This is someone it's to be authentic, but just think about what we're stepping into tomorrow and so on and so on. Now, one of the things that really, really struck me was that there were some players there who had got 50, 60, 70 caps, and they chased me for the envelopes because they left the room whilst I did the kind of processing, if you like, and there was a delay. And I came out, and what I'd done, I'd then slipped the envelopes under the doors. But then some of these players were saying, where's the envelope? Where's the envelope? I said, well, actually, I've put it under the door. So that was my point about the nascent piece, is that it wasn't something that just naturally happened, but actually there was a desire for it. I mean, for example, you know, the founding fathers of, one of the founding fathers of social psychology, a chap called William James, he talks about unconsciously people craving appreciation. And in particular, you might crave appreciation from peers. And equally, at the same time, at one level, we crave a sense of belonging. So these, if you think about this, that exercise, that was all about tapping into appreciation and belonging. That was written down with nobody over your shoulder and you had time as a player to write down how you really felt and you felt safe to do so. That often for me is absolute foundation stone now in, in building a culture where you get the best out of people is creating that that safe environment and that psychological safety. Yeah, yeah massive. Uh, no, it's a great, great point. And I think there's something about, when I think about psychological safety, there's the link between that and also accountability, which I'll probably get to. But for me, psychological 
safety, in, certainly in the business context, is that you feel that you can express something, that it's a concern or actually a positive affirmation of someone without some sort of fear of, re- of repercussion. So there's no black tick or cross against no, exactly. your name. So, yep. so there's no repercussion as in, oh, the comment was not actually well received. Yeah. Right. You yep. feel like, I, so you're showing some vulnerability when you express something about, about a teammate, there's no element of vulnerability, but that's okay. You know, but also there's no repercussion. If you're expressing a concern about something or something that you are noticing or something that you think we're sweeping an issue under the carpet here, because if you don't feel you're psychologically safe to express that because you think it's career limiting or, that in, in some ways you say there's a black mark, then lots of things that should get surfaced and addressed and faced into just don't. Mm-hmm. And so there's um, a brilliant, Margaret Heaven has written a brilliant called Willful Blindness. And I think one of the problems that is psychological safety is at, at the root of that. And I can think of... So willful uh, blindness, if you want to Yeah, so willful that. blindness would be where people avoid facing into certain situations a, because maybe they have a, a bias, a confirmation bias that their view of the world is right. But actually, it isn't safe to surface some concerns. So you park it and actually deny that it's important. So that's where there's a blindness. You're willfully blind. You kind of sleepwalk into a problem. And I think, so certainly with teams, if you don't actually address some stuff that you know is a problem, then it will come back to haunt you at some stage. It's just a matter of time. So I think the best teams do have those open conversations and uh, I mean it's a lovely phrase the Archbishop of, uh, of Canterbury he talks about high performing teams and he's like disagree well they find a way to disagree well and there's a lot in that but um, so if I come back to the psychological safety bit I think if you look across some of and I can think of some examples where the absence of psychological safety has led to absolute disasters so the best example I could probably give you is uh, we did a lot of work with uh, BP and I'm sure people will be familiar with about 10 years ago, um, the Deepwater Horizon crisis at the Gulf of Mexico. So we, Lane 4, have worked subsequently with BP around BP wells, so that aspect of their business, a culture that addresses some of the, the fear of speaking up. And that disaster, just for those that didn't, you know, it cost lots of lives. Oh, and, yeah. And, and, I mean, I mean so I, no, I could probably give it back. I mean, so it is still the largest marine oil spill in history. Millions of barrels of, or gallons of oil. Uh, I mean, yes, 11 men lost their life. But the cleanup operation took over four years and an absolute conservation disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. And there were all sorts of clues to that just waiting to happen. And and I love aspects of your book. You talk about you know, the standards you walk past are the standards you become. And that, that's a perfect example of this. Because this well within the BP culture was known as the well from hell. But no leader, no like supervisor, if you like, sort of noticed that or reflected on that or wondered what that was about. Now, 10 years on, if you think about you know, the aspect, sort of the focus on safety is dramatically different. But at that time, you had people turning a blind eye to this thing being called the well from hell. And so a lot of the work we got into was, okay, what were the barriers to it being called out? What were some of the behaviours and some of the standards that, were, that people knew that there was a disaster? Why was that? So, so in other words, when you look back, there was no psychological safety because people felt if they called stuff out, it would be career limiting. There would be repercussions. Now, another example of that, which one that I don't have 
personal experience of was was you think about what happened with Challenger. Now, the Challenger one is, again, really interesting. Because again, that's a perfect example of psychological safety not being present. So this would have been probably mid-80s, actually. But it, yeah, it is mid-80s. But, it, but it's, it's a really interesting... When you look at the transcripts, and it's become a brilliant case study for things at a couple of levels. One is about the role of leadership vis-a-vis psychological safety, but then also representational dynamics. And I'll, I'll link those two things in a minute. But this is a situation where... Um, there was the launch of the, of the space shuttle. There was a flawed design, and they had the O-ring seals, which some of the engineers were worried about. They were worried about under conditions of extreme cold, they would snap, and then it, there could be a, a disaster. And actually, 70 seconds after takeoff, that very thing happened. So some of the engineers' deepest fears actually did materialise, and seven astronauts lost their lives. Now... The backdrop was that there were, I think, 20 million Americans, 20, sorry, 20% of Americans were watching. So you have like something like 60 million people watching, whatever, whatever the maths is. Now, this is why I, I want to link to sort of representative dynamics because the engineers didn't feel that they had enough authority to call out their concerns for fear of being seen as anti commercial. And one engineer did, and he was told by a superior not to worry about it. I'm sure it's it's something that, that you're magnifying, um, but you know, sort of acknowledged it, but was saying, "I want you to put your enterprise hat on. Think about the commercial impact if we delay. There's like to be 20% of Americans watching. There's already been a delay if we put this off. So, in other words, take your specialist functional hat off and think enterprise. And the person did not feel psychologically safe to 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 hold his line in this instance. Basically, kept quiet. Yeah. And to a huge, to that, to, to huge that. consequence of action, of action there. Um, I suppose if you if you think of the day to day, organisations, families, teams, individuals, um, and groups, where it's not as amplified as that. There's smaller repercussions for not having that psychological safety, um, which is, I guess, a relatively new. It's not a theory. It's, it's a, a relatively new way of thinking about everything. It's kind of it's been around for the last not five or six years. That be about right, Austin? Yeah, I think Amy Emerson brought it um, from Berkeley, from Harvard, oh, Harvard, yeah, Harvard, yeah. Yeah. and uh, oh, no, Berkeley, and then a subsequent being a prophet Harvard. But she has brought that certainly to the fore. But I think the thing about what's so important is it does link to trust, which it is a fundamental. That is a fundamental thing. And how do you build trust in teams such that if you do feel that you're expressing, for me, that they're, they're quite closely linked. But there's also something around being oneself as well and being authentic and true to one's own values. Because in those instances, you've got people who effectively were you know, living a lie. They were pretending something that they weren't. And I think that's where psychological safety comes in. At what point am I just... Uh, trying to conform as opposed to quote back to my Oscar Wilde quote being myself and being myself with skill and so uh, at a level unconsciously or even semi-consciously I don't feel I belong if I don't feel I can be myself and be valued for who I am then that's going to hold me back and it's going to hold back my contribution. We were talking um, on one of our calls before we, we sat down here about the Chilean miners yes, yes, yeah. and psychological safety and I think, you know, I'd love to hear hear that story. And also, probably on the tail of that, a chat about your views really on lots of time we always talk about learning from failure. 
and I've had plenty of them and I'm sure there's been times in your life where you've failed and learned from them but kind of maybe putting a psychological angle on it on how on how failure or problems that arise how they actually can strengthen you it is a a really good case study because uh, to just take people back to 2010 uh, it was a government sort of state-owned copper mine in in Chile and basically there was um, an an explosion and 33 men were trapped and the rescue attempt took 70 days so they were trapped underground for 70 days they did manage to get some provision down to them but for seven days there was no contact Um, and then they found uh, although they were two and a half thousand feet underground they did find a pocket of air where they were able to survive and so 33 men all rescued and it was a great actually example of international collaboration at one level NASA were involved but the reason why it's, it's always cited as just this brilliant case study in in psychological safety and how our decision making was leveraged at the right level because for all money, they shouldn't have got out. If you look at the, the granite, with the thickness of the granite and where they were and the labyrinthine sort of nature of, of the tunnels and so on, they shouldn't have got out, but they did. And one of the things people talked about is that you didn't have the leadership who assumed they had all the answers. You didn't have the leaders who sort of disappeared into some sort of oak panel smoke-filled room and sort of came out a few days later with, try this, you know. I mean... There were some suggestions, but I think they were respectfully ignored by the people who were closest to it. And so there was huge trust for the people who were at, right at the front line of trying to resolve this, that they could say what they wanted to superiors and it would be fine. Right? So let's take that out of, the, out of the equation, that white noise. And actually what they talked about is that everyone was, a, was doing the right role. So the leadership, for example, were then all about how do we mobilise government, international government resource to help the rescue attempt, as opposed to trying to do something that, because we've just seen with the leaders, we've got to try and resolve this. Right? And so there's something about the authority to call the shots. And there is that phrase, which I know you'll be familiar with from the world of sport, where what you want, there is zero tolerance of precious professional boundaries. And the more and more I think about high-performing cultures you get that. Now, in one level, that gets played out in organisations that either go open plan office, you don't have sort of executive offices, you don't have executive car park slots, you don't have executive toilets, because that just creates divisions. So I guess that's a kind of an extrapolation from that Chilean miners crisis, because everyone recognised whose voice was the one that needed to be heard. It's fascinating. And, 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 the secondary, I guess, question that I had then was around failure, you know, because it's a, sometimes a throwaway line where you learn more than failure. In a, and and I, I, I'm, you know, an advocate of that. But how would you, what do you think we learn from failure? There is something about learning from failure, providing we don't over-internalise the failure such that it damages our self-esteem. It's, it's important that we learn and we can internalise it, but then from an attributional perspective, yeah, I was just it's about to mention as permanent, <laughs> yes, as opposed to temporary, because I think that so the attribution is the key thing here. This is really interesting because you get you know sort of stable versus unstable attributions, and also permanent versus temporary, because it's like we've lost, and these are the reasons why, and how pervasive are those reasons? Are there something that we can resolve? Are there something that we will be better if we face into? as opposed to where it doesn't work, is you've gone, yeah, that's just proof that we're not good enough. 
And so there's something about the attribution that you make. That doesn't mean you externalise it and you say, oh, we were just unlucky, because I think it's really important you do internalise the failure. You own the failure, but you own it in a way that we can address it, as opposed to owning it in a way that, yeah, that proves I'm crap. Yeah, or the opposite, which I've had, I remember uh, speaking about about it to a, a rugby player that played a lot of test match rugby for Ireland, and he said like the way he protected himself was, if they win, then it's down to me. And if they lose, it's down to them. And that he didn't learn then, but he protected his self-confidence yeah, in no, a position and, where he needed to be yeah, really confident. No, the protection is a good point because it's a fine line between protecting yourself so you still optimise yourself in that moment as opposed to protecting yourself such that you then never learn. So I'll give you a good example. A colleague of mine, Graham Jones, who you may remember from Graham Jones worked, and I'm sure uh, Robin Smith, I know Robin Smith has permission because I've seen him talk about it. He tells a really interesting story about attributions. So Robin Smith, the ex-England cricket. ex-England cricketer. Brilliant. South African middle-order batsman, played 70, 80 times for England. Played for Hampshire. And so Graham was working with him, and he tells this story where they shifted the attributional sort of focus, if you like, and that learning from failure, whether it was live at the crease or then back in the change rooms and or the training environment. So he tells this story about where he was facing two great Pakistani bowlers, Wacky Yunus and Wazim Akram, who were moving the ball and he would be playing and missing. So in cricket speak, the ball would go past the outside edge. And he says if he internalised that too much in the moment, he'd say, I'm not good enough at this level. These bowlers are too good for me. It's not in me to cope. I'm going to get out any minute. And this is back to that crooked thinking piece. His narrative was, I wonder what they're saying up in the commentary box about Robin Smith isn't good enough. So his narrative, his self-talk, was utterly unhelpful, right? Yes. But he got to a point where, because he was a fantastic batsman, but every now and again those gremlins or that self-talk got in the way. Now that's clearly completely maladaptive thinking it's dysfunctional thinking it's crooked thinking and sure as hell it's self-fulfilling and you know you can have. so what they reframed about was that the time is okay at the crease in that moment to say great delivery world-class bowler that would have beaten anybody's outside edge this sort yep, of thing yep, yep. Yeah. and then therefore you stay in the game you stay on the next delivery you stay in the present you stay pretty you know you, you stay in the game you're not worried about what's happened but then as soon as he was eventually out he then gets back into the training environment. That's when he then properly internalises it. I have got to get better at this. I have got to move my feet. I've got to think about my head position. And so it was like, yes, there was a shift because otherwise he didn't want to erode his confidence in the moment, but he recognised that he had to address it. But yeah, so in that moment, if a, if a ball beats him, then he's, well, that would have beaten any cricketer in the world. We have to bring in the subject, if you like, of self-esteem and or self-confidence because I think that's a huge moderator or mediator of it. And so, body very quickly, for me, there's a subtle distinction between self-esteem, which is the more generalised, global, stable trait, if you like, the sort of self-worth, versus self-confidence, which is more situational, specific and in the moment. Yeah, so, for example, from a self-confidence point of view, you can have high self-confidence in sport, but maybe less self-confident in public speaking. Or if you drill down, you can have, you could be have high confidence maybe passing off your left hand and less confident passing off your right hand. So these, and then a, a nice example might be, so if I'm, um, 
speaking, if I'm presenting to a group and uh, in this particular moment, the group uh, either start leaving the room or they start yawning or they start looking at their watch, that might impact my self-confidence in the moment, but it won't necessarily impact my self-esteem, that global perspective. However, if every time I present, then people start leaving the room or yawning or looking at their watch, and that would start to erode my self-esteem. Right. But I just wanted to reference that because I think it's the, the, whether it's self-esteem and or self-confidence is really critical to the stress performance relationship. And now you may remember this from your student days because a, um, a theory that was really uh, sort of strong at the time and still is, it's held sort of the test of time, was catastrophe theory. Lou Hardy and then John Facey. Now, they, of course, talked about, well, you need some arousal because everybody knows that if they're lethargic or they can't get up for it or they can't get fired up, then that's not good for performance. So we need some, of course. But they talked about the stress-performance relationship. You potentially get into trouble if you have high levels of cognitive anxiety. In other words, worry, I'm doubting. Some of that self-sabotage is starting to creep in. And at the same time, you've got high physiological arousal. Now, all the classic symptoms of, you know, increased heart rate, sweaty palms, you know, you're breathing shallow, you maybe even feeling nauseous. And you interpret all of those physical symptoms as negative. You don't want them. They're not taking you in a good direction. So what catastrophe theory talks about, what Hardy and Fazy talk about, is that if you have high levels of both, you're right on the cusp of a performance suddenly dropping off. But what they then go on to say is that if in amongst that your confidence is low, then you have a catastrophe. So it's a mediating variable. And so that's where I think it's really important to talk about self-efficacy and self-confidence for that reason. Now, there's another prof, a social psychologist called Albert Bandura from Stanford, who did some brilliant, brilliant work, which is still so true. And he talks about and I'm going to use them two interchangeably now, self-confidence and self-esteem. He talks about four sort of descending sources of it. So maybe there's something to think about here. And what he talks about is that self-esteem and self-confidence is built primarily on previous mastery experiences, you know, performance accomplishments. I've done it before. If I've done it once, I can do it again. Now, that makes sense. But this is where I think the attributions you make are really important because if you are if you have a mastery experience and you don't attribute it to oneself and you and you kind of externalize you go oh I got lucky or the other guy just had a bad day then that doesn't necessarily contribute to self-confidence because you've not let it you've not internalized it so there's something there about the performance accomplishments and how you make you, you draw on that what Bandura then goes on to say is there's a second source which is vicarious experience bit of a jargon term but it's vicarious experience in other words you can get confidence from witnessing or observing people you identify with being successful you can still get confidence from that and I was thinking about this in, in, in a couple of ways one for example this where often sometimes you get a crop of young players coming through in any particular sport for example, say an England under-20 player, all, that whole batch come through and all of a sudden they're, th you know, they're on, the, on the cusp of the senior team. It's because you almost like break through of the glass ceiling. So if I'm the player on that team, I go, ah, yeah, we can make it at that level because I identify with that player. So there's something about the vicarious experience. And a, a funny example, I always remember when I used to walk home from school uh, with my brother, right? So I'm, I have a younger brother and he's braver than me, right? He's younger, but he's braver. And so we just had this, um, uh, never forget it, we had this uh, underpass uh, under a dual carriageway on the way home. And it was 
drop off the wall and instead of taking the steps my brother would go we should jump off we should jump off and I go no I'm not sure not sure not confident about doing that anyway one day we walked up to the end of the wall and he just jumped off he landed and he was fine and he looked up and smiled and thumbs up I went ah you can do it so in that moment I jumped off so in other words there was a vicarious experience someone I identified had done it and I all of a sudden became more confident the extreme examples I can think of in sport were them going back to, I used to have a flat in Oxford that overlooked the, the track that Bannister broke the four-minute mile on. He would have had his counterparts that might have beaten him in previous races or, or trained with him and thought, you know what, I'm, he's, he's my level. And see him do that and then suddenly that's why they were as a flurry of four-minute oh, miles. Ben, I mean, that Bannister story is a brilliant pickup on what we've just said because that is all about vicarious experience. What you've just said there is a brilliant link because I think it was... A Swedish guy called Gunnar Hag had set, got gone 401. And um, lots of great athletes were trying to break the four minute barrier. And there was a famously, there was um, an Australian guy called John Landy who, who was brilliant. Athlete, and it's, like, it's impossible, actually. You know, I, I just think physically human beings. And, and at the same time, you had supposed experts from the world of physiology saying human beings just aren't built to go under four minutes. So all of the kind of talk, if you like, all the verbal persuasion around it was, it was impossible. Anyway, Bannister's, this is interesting, because Bannister's self-talk was, I'm refusing to listen to that, because otherwise it just sinks into my shoes. And that's a great metaphor. If I'm listening to that, I'm, all of a sudden I've got heavy legs, I've got heavy feet, and that, so I refuse to listen to it. So your point, so for years and years and years, albeit World War II, I, I, you know, this is a factor, but no one had got near it. Bannister does it, and then two things happened. John Landy, who had given up on the challenge, I think three weeks later, runs 357.9. Like, boom, boom. So the vicarious experience of Bannister doing it just lifted all sorts of shackles. It lifted off all sorts of limitations. He just did what he did. And then I think to the point you, you made just a moment ago is that within two years... I think 15 men had gone under the four-minute barrier. So I'm going to give you a test test you out now. I'm going to give you a a flip side example of this. 1968 Mexico uh, Olympics at altitude, Bob Beeman, long jump. First jump, I think, absolutely shatters the world record, eight metres, 90. I think he has a catonic, I think that's the word you use, a seizure afterward. He just couldn't believe it. And neither could anybody that was competing against them. And they all absolute fluffed it. You know, they went well below their PBs so that they didn't see it as a glass ceiling. They just saw it as something that was impossible. That, that's a really interesting one. And, and it's so true because it's, it's only ever been broken once, I think, again, at yeah, altitude. And I think, yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. And so the really nice link, there is, it's almost like there has to be close enough for it to be realistic to, to a degree. So, for example, you, you make a really good point. And it's back to confidence and the self-talk. It's back to the self-talk because Lynn Davis, in that particular Olympics, um, he'd won in 1964. He'd won the long jump. He was going to defend his title. And, of course, Beeman did what he did. And then Lynn, as the defending champion, tells the story that his self-talk then became dramatically and his confidence plummeted because there there is no way I can do that. So it, absolutely, it can cut both ways. And I think that's where, if it is a very extreme piece, knowing what we're capable of is relevant, but then we've got to make certain that we don't contribute in a self-fulfilling way <laughs> to our own downfall. The show notes for this one will be pretty epic. 
So much to unpack in this episode from learning from failure to self-esteem and confidence. I know how vital it is for those around you to be aligned and positive. Walking into our Fiji changing room minutes before the Olympic Rugby Sevens final in Rio in 2016, you really wouldn't have known they had a game of that enormity ahead. Smiling, chatty, upbeat, they were aligned, psychologically safe, and had no doubt that their best would be on show and it would be more than enough to win the Olympic gold medal. I have seen and felt similar in other changing rooms with other teams over the years. And as a coach, it's those moments that only go to reinforce the importance of getting your culture right. That doesn't get created overnight. It takes time to build a deep and trusting environment. And I hope some of the stuff we talked about will have given you some insight into some of the pieces that fall into place when that happens. And next week, well, we're going to continue this chat. Now, you can find Austin at Lane 4. Their website is www.lane4performance.com. And he's also on LinkedIn if you search for him there. And if you're feeling a little bit nosy, he also competes at International Age Group at Triathlon. And you can find out just how good he is by going to britishtriathlon.org forward slash athletes. As I said, the show notes will provide lots more details and relevant links to anything we signposted or referenced. And you can find those at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast. And please press that subscribe button on the usual platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. Finally, please head to Apple to leave a review about the podcast. Thank you to those that have done that so far. It's been brilliant. I've loved some of the messages. It's really motivated me to make sure that we keep banging out great episodes for you. This has been the Ben Ryan Podcast. Thanks for listening.